You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We are happy to welcome Warby Parker to the SpyCast family. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guest. We're joined today by Dan Gabriel, who's a former CIA counterterrorism officer with extensive experience in countering violent extremism, directing counterinsurgency operations, and developing and benchmarking counter-radicalization theory and methodology in the Islamic world. He completed six tours to Iraq and Afghanistan in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, and he has lived and worked in Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, Ethiopia, Egypt, Jordan, Algeria, the UAE, Turkey, and Europe. He is now a filmmaker, and his feature debut is a documentary, Mosul, which is getting exceptional reviews from everyone who has seen it. And we can add another for what it's worth. This is an amazing film, and everyone should stop what they're doing and watch it right now. Well, not right now, in about an hour when we're done talking. So welcome, Dan. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Vince, thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the movie itself. You you joined CIA at an interesting time. Um, What drove you to the agency? I I, I think I know the answer because you're of the age where the answer tends to be the same for a lot of people. But let me throw that in your direction and see if it's a little different perhaps than others. Yeah, it was was as simple as a date, and you can guess that, 9-11, definitely. Um, So I had just graduated undergrad from GW. I was a journalism major uh, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. I think I was substitute teaching English in Boston, you know, living, living in the basement of my parents' house. And uh, on this one particular day, I didn't have school for whatever reason, and uh, turned on the news to, to see the events unfolded that day. Um, and that, it kind of, uh, it, it kind of, it kind of encouraged me to, to think about, you know, what the, what the next five to 10 years of my life are going to be like. And realizing at that time, and, and one thing that you would hear, you know, the, the news commentators saying over and over on that day, and the following days was the world has just changed. That's kind of weird for somebody, I guess I was 22 or 23 years old. Uh, that's kind of weird for somebody at that age to process because you don't really know what that means because mm-hmm. you have you know your sense of 
what the world is as a 22 year old you've just finished college and yet now somebody's telling you that everything has changed so going back to journalism for one second we know that journalism changed because that was actually a, a turning point for journalism as well and you know uh the model that you were taught in journalism school of kind of going out collecting information how how media works how, how people ingest news and information all of that was changing because of technology uh which one of the things that that meant was hard to harder harder and harder to get journalism jobs uh the pay was you know less and less i think i had a a job offer to work at cnn where i had interned and it was like 18 or nineteen thousand dollars a year i was like well i mean i'll have to take out a, a loan to pay right. my you know my my um my lease so Hence, I ended up in Boston trying to figure out what to do with myself. And, and 9-11 was, was the moment uh, when, I, when I sat up and I said, uh, this kind of provides me with the, with the context and, and, the, and the goal um, uh, and motivation to, to, to get involved in, in what's going on. And for me, it, was a, it started with getting an understanding. And what I wanted to do was to understand the religion, the people, the politics, the culture, uh, all of it, the context of it. And uh, that meant going to the Middle East, and specifically I picked uh, Cairo. Uh, at that time it was, I think then more than now, was really the center of the Arabic world, certainly in terms of the dialect of the, of the language, uh, but also the culture. You know, it was at that, again, at that time, it was more of a, a hub of media and entertainment uh, in the Middle East than, than Dubai was. Uh, so it was a good place to go. And I went to AUC and I studied Arabic for about six months, um, came back, knocked out the uh, master's degree at GW in security policy studies and was fortunate enough uh, while I was there to have met um, the CIA officer in residence, a guy by the name of George Fidas. And he was one of, I think that time they had maybe 10 or 12 of these uh, CIA officers in different universities around the country for not recruiting and spotting purposes, but for you know public relations, right. uh, more uh, recruiting. Well, I mean, somewhere like GW, where you have a lot of people who are going there because they want exactly. a job in government. It's a perfect place. And, and mm -hmm. you know, the the waiting list to get into this class was significant, I guess, because my last name begins with a G. Maybe I, I got in. Uh, and people that last name begins with a Z, they didn't. But in any case, I was in his class and um, submitted my application to the agency that year. And by uh, July 2003, I was EOD. So you spent time in both Afghanistan and Iraq. I, I think today people conflate the two. Uh, I think people did at the time, too, who just had, you know, I don't know how many people I talked to that were uh, assuming Afghanistan was a desert uh, yeah. and were kind of surprised to see trees and mountains. Um, you know, but they're, it's not just geographically different. There's a dramatic difference in culture, in society, in the way the war fought, everything. They're not entered, you can't just kind of go from one to the other. How much at CIA was there an understanding that it might as well be you know, Venus and Mars. I mean, yes, you're fighting people who have a similar religion, arguably not all that much, because Afghanistan, you got multiple things going on there. How much was there a learning curve going from one to the other? Right. Well, look, uh, just like in space travel, to get to Venus, you have to go by Mars. And in the CIA, I don't think anybody joined because they wanted to go to Iraq. Everybody wanted to go to the main show, uh, which was Afghanistan. But um, my recollection is that really the, the junior officers had to do their time, and that meant, for the most part, a, a lot of uh, newbies, um, first year, second tour officers, ended up in Iraq, uh, which is where I went first. So Afghanistan came after that for me. And, and was that, a again, a completely different world than in Iraq? I mean, it, it's as far as like recruiting sources, as far as doing operations within Afghanistan. I mean, really, you're looking at a, a complete difference in country where you go from an infrastructure that existed 
in Iraq for decades and decades and decades to a country like Afghanistan that's never had a established infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think the operations were, were certainly different uh, in Iraq than they were in Afghanistan. Certainly part of that was because of the time frame when I was there. You know, Iraq just kind of right, right at or beginning of the surge, uh, 2004 to 2005, and then Afghanistan was kind of, I was there in this period, you know, 2006, 2007 time frame when it was kind of had fallen off most people's radars. People were more focused on what was happening in Iraq because the surge was really going then. Uh, so, yeah, operationally, it was, it was a different momentum. Um, the living conditions were different. Uh, the engagement with the military was different. You felt maybe more you were there to support the military in, in Iraq, and it was more of a – it was almost more of a tactical uh, intelligence role, if you will, in terms of it was really support to the warfighter. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, I think that was a big change for, for what the agency had done, you know, maybe going all the way back to Vietnam. But then when you get to Afghanistan, it, it was this was where the, I think the agency really excelled. And, of course, you know, going back to the early days after 9-11 um, and, and, you know, that's that's kind of the, the legacy and the romanticism of the agency that everybody joined for. Right. As I mentioned, your bio spent a lot of time uh, in several different countries in East Asia. And I'm wondering how different that environment is, because people don't equate your background with East Asia. Yeah. Uh, but you've talked about <clears throat> Indonesia as being the most populous Muslim country in the world. Um, how was that environment and the learning experience for you? Uh, again, operationally very different, not being in a war zone. Um, and again, a lot of, a lot of I, I think, our cohort that was in, in the agency at that time, uh, some of them never even made it out of the war zone. They they just had an entire career and left after three years or six years or whatever, um, without really seeing kind of how the traditional operations work in, in the agency realm. Uh, so it was it was the complete opposite side of the coin. Um, and for me, after doing that for about three three years, that was when you know, early 2012 was when I decided to leave and move on, move on. And in what way did you decide to leave CIA? Was it a you had done what you just, you needed to do and you wanted to do something else or I mean, I'll, I'll, I've spoken to a lot of people our age, or we're, we're relatively the same age, and younger now, who went in thinking this might be a career for them, but after five, six, seven years, they said, uh, like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, was there a feeling like that for you, or was it always, let me spend eight, nine years at CIA and then do something else with my life? Yeah, I, I think when you're 23 and, you know, you get the conditional offer letter and, and then they call back after your, you know, your security process is adjudicated and literally the, uh, he wasn't a recruiter, but whatever his role was, the guy that calls you to tell you, uh, his his line to me was, what are you doing with the next 30 years of your life? And I was like, working for you? Yeah. So that was that was definitely the esprit de corps, you know, when they bring you in, that that's kind of the operating um premise and i think part of it's generational too because i think up up through my generation and my generation our generation being the kind of the transitional point i mean if you had the amazing opportunity to join an organization like the cia you would stay there for 30 years but then you know moving into kind of generation y and into the millennial world you know uh, the the goals in life change i think i think it, it just it's whether it's technology or culture or um or something more uh in the zeitgeist it's just it, it, people our generation i think typically don't want to or after our generation typically don't stay positions as long it's just it's just the way it is let me ask you a personal question was it burnout did you ever kind of say i just can't do this anymore because i've talked to a lot of people who just just i just can't do this anymore it's just it's too much yeah no i i mean certainly there was that aspect of it um i think there was certainly a, a sense of mission accomplished after after they got bin laden 
um, so that with that box kind of checked, I think it was a, a question for me. I, it, simultaneously, the last two years I was there as a contractor, as a Green Badger, and it, you know I, I completed an MBA up at Babson, an executive program. So I had look, I was already looking at that as kind of the bridge to mm-hmm. the outside world. Um, and my intention when I left and ultimately started a company was to do similar type of work, uh, maybe not for the same client, maybe not for the CIA, but potentially for the DOD or State Department or the private sector, an oil company. Um, so that kind of played out over a couple of years and eventually shifted into the media work. Mm-hmm. So the, the rise of ISIS, which is kind of a key component to the film, or at least the rise of when they named themselves the Caliphate and everything, not AQI or, you know, that's been around for much longer, but the idea of the Islamic State that came not long after you left, at least as a contractor. Um, this is... For a lot of people, this even superseded Al-Qaeda as like the juicy CT target, right? The idea that these guys were trying to claim territory, that they were even more violent than Al-Qaeda ever was. Did you regret not getting a chance to take a crack at ISIS as an intelligence officer or as a special, you know, operations officer? That's a great question. I've I've certainly never had that one before. Um, You know, I I think we had enough fun with them uh, when they were called AQI. Um, having spent having spent some time over there then, um, but frankly, this is a, is a continuation, and I think that's what we're going to talk about next is the film because it, it to me it is a continuation of of what I did, and in this case, um, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it in a way that's not classified, right. so we can we can talk about it on the radio, talk about it on a podcast, and and get it out there so the rest of the country, the rest of uh, the world can see what ISIS is all about, and and. Not only just what this organization is about, but the ideology and about what's going to be required to, to address it going forward the next 10, 15, 20 years, but also about the region. So, so to me, it's, it's kind of like a, um, a continuation uh, of the same thing, but um, certainly using a different platform mm-hmm. and, and uh, tool set to do that. Well, we've talked a li- you've talked a little bit about different schools and degrees that you got. There are a couple that you, you'd skip that on, including NYU and in California about movie making. And so that's the next thing I want to talk about. That's not necessarily a natural next step for a former CIA officer, business person. What what led you to say, I'm gonna make a movie about this and why this topic? I mean, this is obviously something that you work closely on, but what gave you the special insider edge to make this movie that no one else could have? In one word, access, uh, having access to that part of the world and, and an understanding uh, context for what was happening. I, I think to be able to tell the story in a way that Hollywood would never be able to even approach going into this level, I think, of authenticity. That's what I'm certainly most proud of about the film. Um, I think it goes back to one word, storytelling. And if, if, you, if you go back in my, in my past to when I was a journalism uh, major and never worked as a journalist, but cer- certainly I always had, I think, that, that streak in me. CI is certainly not a place you're going to be telling stories, and mm-hmm. even after you leave, we're not going to talk about any of the stories that I had from there. But what we can talk about is, is this film and, and Mosul and... and um, and what happened between 2016 and 2017, uh, and that story, the film itself, is is um, it's it's influenced or it's uh, authenticated by knowing that I was there in a previous life in a different capacity, and that I see it through through a different lens. So for for October 2016, you know, basically when the when the filming began, uh, to to back up a little bit from that, uh, we basically ended up with a government contract uh, to do some work in Cuba. Uh, which is another unusual place uh, for a former agency guy to end up doing work in. But 
essentially this this goes back to about 2013 2014 time frame and my my fledgling new government contracting company uh, put forth a bid to support the office of cuba broadcasting which is part of the what now is called the u.s agency for global media so the old u.s information agency mm -hmm. and after that was called the broadcasting board of governors so we re we replied to this uh, to this RFI for you know basically they were looking for somebody that could get into Cuba and train journalists. Um, so I approached it like you would an intel operation, you know, uh, and we identified people within Cuba that would be have the capability to do that. Uh, and the people that we started with were dissidents; they were criminals, they were lawbreakers, they were on the outside uh, of society looking in because they you know whether they were in Havana or Guantanamo. They were people that were a thorn, a constant thorn in the side of the government, protesting and, and hunger strikes and, and that type of thing. So we started with them, and we brought them out of the country. We trained them to be journalists and equipped equip them with very basic, um, I want to say, like prosumer, you know, camcorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, for about six years, we, we produced uh, all of the content for Radio and TV Marti, which is the Broadcasting Board of Governors uh, channel in Miami mm -hmm. that broadcasts to the to Cuba. Uh, it's all in Spanish language. It's all, it's supposed to be of Cuba, for Cuba, by Cubans. Um, and its goal is really to inform Cubans of what's happening, not only in their country, but, but around the world. And specifically our access uh, was such that with this network that I built, um, it was such that we had grown to eventually 13 different agencies under, under my operation that had complete coverage of the island and produce all of this kind of short form, you know, typically two to three minute stories on everything from environmental issues to gay and lesbian rights to cultural issues to the embargo um, to the Castro family. So it was, you know, it was just a, a tremendous opportunity to get in there and do some real kind of guerrilla journalism that the Western press would never even try to do because they wouldn't be allowed to. Yeah, I mean, with the, that TV Marti and Radio Marti had always been kind of more focused on the exile community and who, who especially for younger Cubans today, there's no linkage right. to the people who left in 1960 right. and 1959. And so it's a really interesting concept to bring people actually from their own age group of the people growing yep. up in Cuba now. Yeah, it, was, it was a real embarrassment. Before 2012, um, uh, radio and TV Marti, their, their idea of news would be they had a soundstage in Miami and they'd pick a Cuban that just got off the boat and they'd sit him down and say, you know, what, what's the latest happening in Cuba? You know, and he'd, he'd pontificate and, you know, they'd cut yeah. to commercial. So this was this was a big step forward for them. Uh, we were able to get inside Cuba, and and it was not easy to do. I'll tell you, our guys got beaten up, they got arrested, equipment got stolen. Um, the Cuban state, you know, news put my name in the paper more than one time, my address on the internet. So uh, it was fun though. It was a lot of fun. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, I mean, that's the interesting idea that I wanted to ask you about is you, this film, it, it's not a documentary, like you're not a Michael Moore, you're not standing there like, 
talking to people with a microphone. You have a kind of a director surrogate as you you know your person on the ground there, and that's this Iraqi journalist Ali Mola. Right, Mola. Yep, Mola. Um, is he somebody that you had met beforehand? How did you link up with him? Because he is really a fantastic personality. Yeah, and you can tell that he knows what the hell he's doing. He, he is. He's he's a great on-screen uh, character. So the the gap between how do you go from Cuba yeah. back to Iraq uh, was another another project that we did for um, uh, in this case El Hura, which is the Middle East broadcasting uh, channel into into that part of the world, also run by the same U.S. government agency. Uh, so we started with uh, proposing for them after we had done four or five years of short form journalism, doing a, a long form TV series. So that turned into being a, a 13 episode, uh, 20, 23 minutes each series, uh, profiles of ISIS defectors. So this is around 20, uh, I want to say 2015, 2016. So this is right at the point when ISIS, you know, was starting to, there was starting to be cracks in the foundation. And of course, the goal of, of the U.S. government across different agencies at that point was to, to identify ways to, to exacerbate those, uh, the, the conflict within the organization to get people to defect. So what we did is we, we went to Morocco, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq um, and, and found fixers and who got us in touch with defectors uh, who were already returned to their, their country of origin. Uh, and they talked about their stories. And, and basically, the, the, each episode was broken into two parts. The first was, how did that individual get into ISIS? And they were young and old, and they were male and female. And they had 13 different reasons for getting into ISIS. And that was, I think, of interest to a lot of people because people think, well, why'd they get in? Just they're crazy Muslims. No, they had many, many different reasons. Uh, religion was a component of that, but not the only element of it. And then the second part of it, which is the more important part, was why did they get out and how? Uh, and again, 13 different reasons why these individuals got out. Some of them didn't get paid. Uh, some of them missed home. Uh, some of them had kids. Some of them um, got tired of the, the bloodshed. So there were all these different reasons. And again, then why, you know, how they eventually extricated themselves from the mess was kind of the, perhaps the more dramatic part of the episode. But what, what it all combined into was... Um, it was a it was a series that that hopefully you know would look at this target audience in the Middle East uh, and show them a pathway to get out of the mess that they're in, and to the extent that that helped you know I don't know five hundred five hundred five thousand people find their way out of ISIS, um, then credit to the U.S. government's uh, Middle East Broadcasting Network for for paying for that. Um, we did one season, and then the second season was more on life after Dash, life after ISIS. Uh, they called Dash mm -hmm. ISIS. Uh, so more about, you know, the car, the, the car bomb maker returns home and he becomes an auto mechanic and the Sharia dress code enforcer, you know, now she's a seamstress. So that kind of yeah, corny, but it, oh, it works, I mean, you know, yeah. and it, and, it, and the people can relate to it. I mean, it shows that, you know, it, it's, you're more likely to defect if you think there actually is a life afterwards that you can. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and one of the key things that anybody that's invo been involved with counterinsurgency will show you is that there's got to be a pathway mm -hmm. to a return, a return to normalcy. Um, because we know all the people that were in ISIS, they're not either dead or in prison. Some of them are back in their home country. Right. So there has to be a pathway to a return to normalcy. Well, in many cases, the, the reason for joining is economic. And if you don't have a future, that's why you join in the first place. But if you can show, hey, look, there is a possible future for you. Like you said, an auto mechanic or a seamstress or other things, then there might be an impetus to not to go off right. and do the things you were doing. So how we got to Mosul, it was as simple as one of my crews uh, that was covering Iraq for us uh, said, hey, things are about to pop off in Mosul. This is October 2016. Do you want us to film it? I was like, okay, go ahead, film it. 
um, and then 80 hours of footage later. Yeah. Absolutely. Had a documentary, and it, it's it was weird putting the documentary together in, in this way, and I don't think many are put together in this way because it was it was really after the fact. Uh, we didn't know what the story was at the outset. We we knew what the outcome would be. We knew that ISIS was going to lose. Um, didn't necessarily know how long or how bloody it would be, but everybody knew what the outcome would be when the, all these different forces, from the Iranians to the Syrians to the Russians to the U.S., uh, you know, Iraqis aligned against them. Um, but the hard part was finding the right people. Uh, and com coming through that footage to find the right people to tell the story right. of what happened. Yeah, um, I definitely want to talk about some of those yeah. because they're extraordinary personalities. Let's, for, for the people listening, let, let me set up Mosul, give a little background. It's the second largest city in Iraq. It has over a million people. This was one of the things a lot of us noticed uh, when Mosul fell was the embarrassment of the Iraqi army just running away and leaving all their American-made equipment behind. Five years ago last month. Yeah, and that was... June 2014. Again, as an ex-tanker, just watching ISIS driving around M1 Abrams, you're like, oh, Jesus, what the hell? Right. Right? I mean, that's why we gave them to you. Um, in the fall of 2016, you mentioned all the different forces. I think about 100,000 troops massed to move into kicking ISIS out. And it being the largest siege since Stalingrad. That's how massive this operation was. And... It's easy to get caught up in kind of the military history behind this and the war fighting behind this and to forget the human element on the ground over there. I mean, it's usually unless a U.S. soldier is killed, they're just numbers for a lot of Americans, right? It's, it's can't even want to imagine the civilian deaths that happened in Iraq. You know, it's hundreds of thousands, but people focus on, right? right you know, we're Americans. We focus on the American sure. dead. That's, that's kind of nature for us. But I have to say this movie humanizes the people fighting that aren't Americans, right? It'd be easy if you had a, a E5 army guy in there, right? U.S. Army from Kansas. You'd be like, oh, that, that guy, I want to get to know that. But you have people like the crocodile, who is this just someone that it'd be very hard for most people to identify with and to kind of look at. And the movie makes it easy. Right. And, and so I, I love, let's talk about him, because I, I, I'm not exactly in fighting shape right now, personally. He doesn't really look like a soldier all that much. I mean, this is, you know, kind of the jolly green giant. And what was really interesting to me is almost scary in some way is his philosophy on Iran and his philosophy on the Kurds and the idea of you want to think Iraq one day is going to be free of sectarian violence. But people like this, I don't know. Yeah. So to, to start with uh, on what you said, so this is an Iraqi story. And some people have seen this and been like, oh, there were no U.S. troops in that. Cor very good. Correct. You're right. Uh, first of all, they're, they're just off screen. And they're off screen because that's the way I directed it. And that's the way I wanted it. I wanted it to be an Iraqi story uh, of Iraqis by Iraqis to tell their story. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because the strength of Operation Inherent Resolve was that this was their mission. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that took back Mosul. That's the way it was supposed to be. Yes, our air power and our equipment and support and training uh, played a role in that. And I've talked to, I mean, literally at this point, hundreds of people uh, that, that served both in OIR, so more recently, and were there in 2004 when I was there. And there's, there's a big divide, between not only generational, um, but in, in many cases, understanding the different missions between what it was then and what it is now and whose who's face and flag is leading that mission. So first of all, people have to understand that because when they're watching it, some it's, it's jarring for some because they're like, what's all in Arabic? Yeah, man, that's what, that's what they speak in Iraq. We're, we're going to dub it over in English, yeah. right? So, but we get past that. 
we get into that it's an Iraqi story. Uh, we get into that it's uh, what I like to call the last battle of the Iraq war. Um, hopefully, I mean, I suppose there could be another. I, we could be look at ISIS 3.0 or there could be an, an Iranian angle that happens and there's another battle in five years. Who knows? But it, the, the central theme of the film is sectarianism. It's not the battle for Mosul. Right. It's not about ISIS. It's not about Islamic extremism. It's about sectarianism. Because ultimately, ISIS taking over Mosul was a symptom of the problem and not the problem itself. And the vacuum that existed in, in Mosul that allowed those, as you said, the, well, the, the Iraqi army to, to run back to Baghdad and leave their tanks behind was, was a direct outcome of the vacuum came from the sectarian tensions between Mosul and, and the government. Um, and what you see on film in, in Mosul is different characters from different walks of life. And you're talking about the crocodile, who's a, who's a sheikh, he's a Sunni, a tribes leader. Uh, and he speaks very um, admiringly of the Iranians and very negatively of the Turks. Uh, and the different characters in the film all have their kind of their ally and they all have their antagonist. And sometimes it's surprising to hear somebody like the, the Sunni uh, from Nineveh province speaking well of the Iranians and negatively of the Turks and, and vice versa. So these different alliances, uh, what, what we call an uneasy alliance is what, what kind of is the glue that holds the, the coalition together. Um, the future of that alliance is really the underlying theme of the film and what happens to Mosul, the rest of Iraq, and the region at large. I, one of my other, I mean, I love the crocodile. One of my other favorite characters, and there's so many, um, Um Hanadi, I, I'm going to pronounce these wrong, but I think that's right. She is as, ba as badass as it gets. Yeah. Um, she's a Sunni also. She's a woman, obviously. She's a grandmother, right? This isn't some Peshmerga that's 26 and, and fighting against ISIS. And she's fighting for revenge, you know, and, and that's where you get. She said she buried nine family members that were killed by ISIS. I yep. can imagine that she's got some issues, of course. Two, husband. two ex-husbands, yeah, brother. A couple and the others. story of the minefield where her her husband had been killed in a minefield, and she just kind of walked out there and grabbed the body, and then everyone was like, "Don't do that," you know. With the expert, she's like, "I'm the expert," but she does say something interesting. She's really the one that is pushing against sectarianism more than anybody else. And she mm -hmm. even says sectarianism is more dangerous than chemical or nuclear weapons. That's her quote. Yeah. And that one just stood out. I was just like, wow, because crocodile and even the SF captain we'll talk about in a second, they have their identities, right? Their identities as a Sunni or as a Shiite or, or as anything else. And she seems to just want to be embrace this idea of moving forward without that identity. And you do see someone in this SF captain. I can't remember his name. Captain Elba. You know, yep. I love how he talks about Japan after World War II also, where he's like, look, here's a great model for us. Right? Japan was flattened. He talks about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And very soon after, they became a prosperous country and one of the greatest economies in the world. And he's like, that could be us. And seeing that hopefulness from people who have seen every kind of horror you could possibly imagine I'm not sure if I should be optimistic, but there's a little bit of optimism there. Yeah, it's a in terms of optimism, pessimism. I think there's a careful balance in the film, and I, I try to calibrate it right at about 50%. So the viewer can choose what they take away. Um, I'm kind of left as you are with maybe maybe to work out, maybe it won't. Um, maybe Captain Allah's vision for Iraq will will shine through. I mean, this is a guy from Basra that signed up. He's about our age, so he's 
I mean, he's seen kind of, you know, when he was young, the days under Saddam, and then your, a couple of years of U.S. occupation and the chaos that came after it, and now this, you know, unknown period of time that we're in. Um, so whether it's uh, whether it's his his vision or uh, or someone else's, but but back to Uma Nadi, she she's a great character, and sometimes you know by calling them characters, we've, we've misled people into thinking that this is reenacted. Right. But if you were in Hollywood and you were creating this, you would create an Illuminati because that's she's the contradiction. She has the character arc that we like to see on HBO series that somebody starts here and they end up here and they change over time. She literally has that built into her life. Um, she's a contradiction in the sense that she's a woman and she's leading men. Uh, that's she's a Sunni and she's on the Iranian payroll. I don't know if you caught that, but again, trying to explain this to to the American audience that's not as well versed as you are and many most of your listeners are. But when when you tell them that this may not have been possible without the support of Iran, mm-hmm. they're like, "What do you mean?" Is of course sometimes they think that Iran is ISIS and you have to kind of right. untangle a little bit of that, but. The fact is, I mean, she she's in the kitchen there, and she's talking about how sometimes she has to um, give money to her her followers because the paychecks don't come through on time. Wait a minute, what what paychecks? Well, of course, I mean, what she's talking about is is the salaries or stipends that they receive from, you know, who handed them out? Who knows? The IRGC, the Iranian government, the Iraqi government, something in between. Uh, but that's a fact. Uh, and, and all of the flags of the different uh, parts of the alliance are, are shown in the film. Uh, you see the yellow of the Hezbollah uh, faction. You, you see the, the Christians, the Yazidis, the Sunni, and the Shia, and they're all momentarily joined in this operation to defeat ISIS because we can at least all agree that they're just losers. Well, and there's a wonderful chart online when ISIS first popped up that kind of tried to show the alliances in the Middle East, like who was friends with whom and everybody else. And it kind of just ISIS, everybody just went right. down the list. I, I don't care that. who you were, Hamas, Hezbollah, right. everybody hated ISIS. And that was kind of the one uniting factor that could brought everybody together. What I, want, what I love about her is there's almost an ISIS mythology about her, where they talked about her cooking ISIS heads mm-hmm. and all this. Like She's kind of taken on this almost mythical status as this commander fighting these ISIS for, and it's a woman, mm-hmm. and it's a grandma. Right. And, and again, I, I, she's not like a 40-year-old grandma. She's probably late 50s. You know, she, she looks like she's been around for a little bit, and she's as badass as it comes. Right. And that's just extraordinary to kind of see. Again, if you think about the male-dominated, you know, Muslim societies and Arab society, that just, just turns that 100% in the other direction. Yeah. I, I mean, she doesn't look like, you know... Lara Croft and Tomb Raider. I mean, right. she looks more like, I don't know, like Roseanne Barr or something. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's it's jarring to, to imagine that, but that, that's just the way it is. Another interesting stereotype that I, I sometimes fall into, and I certainly other do, others do as well, I mean, particularly thinking about how Mosul fell in the Iraqi army, was the professionalism of the special operations team that was led by the, this SF captain. Again, I forgot his name. You told me 10 Ca- seconds. Captain Allah, right. Yeah. And... They're really well trained, and you look at that again, and you have a little bit of optimism for the future because they're they're very good CT, they're very good at doing mount warfare, they're very good at understanding how to work together. They're a tight knit group. Looks very similar if they weren't speaking Arabic at all because of their beards and because of their uniforms. It's a SEAL team moving through Mosul. It's an SF team moving through Mosul. They have 
I mean, granted, they're carrying British rifles and whatever. But my point being, they look like they know what the hell they're doing. And that's, again, a stereotype that you don't necessarily think about the Iraqi army being built back up to having that kind of competence. Right. And it's a it's a testament uh, to the work that our our troops did in OIR because that was their mission was to train these guys. And it wasn't an easy one. And we've tried for, since 2003 or four to do that. Uh, but it looks like some of the training finally mm-hmm. finally took hold. Now, I'll point out that there's one guy that has a scope mounted backwards on his saw. It, you know, it, on Facebook, it's just amusing to see the comments that people leave. And it's like, you know, how, how could you how could you not cut that out or whatever? You know, and it's like, well, why would you cut it out? Because right. it, it, we want to present what was there. You know, this is how it was. This is what happened. They're not all perfect, you know, and whether whether his his implication was cut it out to make them look better or, you know, this was staged, it, neither. I mean, yeah. this is what this is what you get. What you see is what you get. And maybe you see good tacticals. I mean, they, they, they follow the tracer to the house where the ISIS guys are and then hit it with the tank. I mean, it's it's yep. what we do. Right. And it was it was very happy. I was happy to see that again. The reputation of the Iraqi army from everything I've seen is much lower than that. And that was, that was good to see again, optimistic. What made me somewhat pessimistic was the interview with Nasser, the, the ISIS detainee. And you even, you, you even set this up in the film that um, Ali expected him to be contrite or to kind of realize he had made the wrong decision, but it was the opposite. And that to me is problematic. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he, he gives, I would, I've seen a lot of propaganda, a lot of ISIS propaganda and I have to say that I, he does perhaps the best job of explaining the ideology in a, what I want to call a logical way that I've heard. Um, and it's because it's so matter of fact uh, that it kind of distills the, the ideology down to a very basic level. You know, when he talks about cutting off the hand as, as punishment for stealing, you know, it's, it's chilling. I, I don't want to give it away, but I, I do that. That's definitely one of my favorite parts. Um, of the film certainly of the of the people that we interview because it's just the way he presents it and like you said he's he's not remorseful he's he's uh till the, till the end uh, that's how he is and i don't know his end may have come we we can't seem to find him so let me ask you a filmmaking philosophy question he obviously knew there was a camera in the room mm-hmm. when he was giving that interview do you think he was playing to the camera a little bit i think he could have been yeah, yeah um and questions uh, like, you know, was he, you know, forced to make the, you know, to, to make an appearance on camera? Like those are, those are questions that we, we, we stayed away from. Yeah. Uh, but you know, certainly in somebody in U S custody, we, we wouldn't be able to have the access to, right. we can't just go down to Guantanamo and right. pull somebody out and, and throw them on film. But there's, there's different rules there. And, um, I, I think for him, I think it was, I think it was a question of him trying to leave a legacy, uh, he knew that this is going to be part of a film, and and that's he delivered his his uh, his final words, perhaps. Let me let me ask you finally about what to me was the most concerning thing in the film. That that is, although ISIS has been defeated as a territorial caliphate, there's a lot of discussion in the film about ISIS infiltration, whether it's within the government, whether it's within the refugees who are now returning to Iraq. Um, there's a wonderful quote from, I think it was Ali or someone else, that is, is kind of the International Spy Museum's trademark is nothing is as it seems, right? Where you've got people coming back, right. you don't know their <laughs> true loyalties, people who have worked their way into higher levels within the Iraqi government that might actually be loyal 
to ISIS. Are we looking at another kind of ISI situation in Pakistan where you don't know necessarily who you can trust and who you can't trust? Is that going to be the future of our relationship with Iraq? Well, I would hope not. Yeah. However, uh, you know, the, the scene that we use to, to capture everything that you're describing right now is the river scene. Yeah. Uh, and it's when Colonel Nizal is, is taking refugees from one side of the river, the Tigris River, to the other. Uh, and they're bringing them across in a, a rowboat, basically, uh, three, four at a time. And he makes it very clear in, in that process on, on the opposite, opposing side of the river. You know, certainly they have to lift their shirt up, show they're not wearing an explosive belt. Then they get to the other side. They're kind of herded and corralled into line. And the interrogation process begins. The men are separated from the women. And it's it's just very clear from from the questions that he asks and poses that there's no way to know who's right. who's who, uh, who's a victim and, and who's a perpetrator. There, fast forward to the end, another scene. We're in a house, and you know the, uh, the special forces, the Golden Brigade guys, go in and they they find a guy, and you know they're like, which which way did so and so go? And they're like, that way. And yeah. everybody's pointing a different direction. Yeah. Uh, and then they're like, hmm, well. You know what? What's under this blanket? And there's a pile of rockets. Uh, well, where did these come from? And then, well, like, ah, oh, this guy came down from Raqqa. Yeah, he just left his He just rockets. left them here, and he said yeah. he'd be back for them. And so you, you know, and it just it gets to what you're saying, which is there's more. There's more than meets the eye. You, you know, um, there's there's two sides to it, and it's it's very difficult to know what you're actually looking at, what you're hearing. Do you have? I mean, we've already talked about optimism versus pessimism. Do Do you have a more optimistic view for the future of Iraq than Afghanistan. I mean, I know Afghanistan's kind of falling into some issues right now, um, falling into continuing to have some issues right now. Do you see a future for Iraq as, as, as a quasi-stable country moving forward? It seems to have less sectarian violence today, certainly, than it has in the past. That's a good question. I, th I, think, to, um, I think to answer that question, you have to look at Iran. Uh, and it's it's the extent to which Iran is going to want to remain involved or get further involved in Iraq uh, that I think is going to determine which way Iraq goes. Um, to a lesser extent, they're involved in Afghanistan, but not, not nearly as much. Um, and I think that's one of the complicating factors for our policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran, as we see what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Um, a, a conflict with Iran will be played out in Iraq. Yep. So everything that we've seen since 2003 will, will just happen in reverse or in slow motion again. I mean, it's, it, it has significant implications for, for Iraq and, and that country's future. Um, it's also clear that if Iran does want to become more involved in Iraq, then the, U, the U.S. will have to be you know, kept out or, or, or marginalized even further than they are, which I think is what Iran wants. So it's tough. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even put money on it one way or the other. I don't know. That's a, it's a good question. Let me ask you this: Is are you now a filmmaker? Is that is that the direction? What is the future yeah, for I, Dan Gabriel? I guess right. We're we're looking at a. It's not a sequel, but it would certainly be a follow-on. And w one thing I want to look at is is the conflict between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And, and notice I didn't say between Sunni and Shia because I, I do think it's more political in nature. But it is wrapped in a in a religious kind of fabric. Um, and we have we have some pretty pretty good access. Uh, to other countries as well, Yemen and uh, Lebanon, in places that we can tell this story that I've kind of loosely constructed uh, called Proxy. And it's, it's basically the, 
the silent war that's not so silent if you live in Yemen, not so silent right. if you live in Syria, that's being played out on the backs of these local populations um, at the direction of, you know, uh, of Saudi Arabia and Iran. And sadly, there's a lot of stories to tell. There's many stories. You're never going to run out of opportunities to do that because of the mess that even in the even in some of the more stable countries, even Jordan and other places, because of the refugee crisis, you're running into some of those issues. So it's a, unfortunately a target rich environment to continue making yeah. films. So how can people watch Mosul? I mean, I, I, I wonderfully watched it because you know, I was going to have you on, but how can people watch it if they want to? It's, uh, it's available pretty much anywhere online. So you can stream it on iTunes. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Google Play. You can also buy the DVD or the Blu-ray uh, on our website, mosul-film.com. Uh, so we've done a couple screenings around the country, uh, basically for military and veteran audiences. We may do a couple more of them in the in the fall. Uh, we are getting into the, uh, the the awards race, so that's that's going to be something we'll be we'll be looking at in the fall. I'm pretty excited about that as well. Well, again, again, I can say it's an extraordinary film. There are several times during it, especially in a bird's eye view in some cases, with a fly's eye view in other cases of modern urban combat, where I was like, "Good lord." Right, the Phantom Four drone, yeah, being I mean, used to drop grenades well, it, it's with the just poppy kind pops. of talk about realism. I mean, you look at like Restrepo and some of these other documentaries that kind of puts you in the fight. This is definitely one of them where I got to hand it to your your cameraman. There, you can hear the crack of bullets, not just the whiz of bullets, the crack of bullets going by, which means they're very very close. And and there's a lot of courage there because there are scenes where you can just kind of see the other camera guy, yep, like running. It's like SF guy, SF guy, camera guy, not getting in the rear, not doing anything, even jokes. And it's like, I know you'd rather be in front of us than actually behind us. So these are some of, uh, again, some of the most extraordinary scenes from this effort, successful effort to retake Mosul. Um, And if you're you're willing to do the reading, which I think it's it's absolutely key to have this Iraq story, uh, because it's not, it's just not something that's around. Right, it's you know you, you have so many things from the American perspective. Right, here's something from the Iraqi side. So Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at Spycast. We truly appreciate it. Thanks, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our donate now link at the top of the page. Hi everybody, it's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.